0: it's my pleasure to uh, introduce our, uh, our plenary speaker today. Um, I just learned, I've been following Dennis Turner's work for some time, and I just learned that his original training was in political theory. Um, and so he's moved so much. But uh, there's a story that goes with that from my perspective here. But, uh, but, but uh, he's the Horace Tracy Pitkin Professor of Historical Theology and the Professor of Religion in the Department of Religious Studies at Yale. Prior to that, he held the Norris Hulse Chair uh, at uh, Cambridge, and uh, he's uh, written <coughs> quite a lot. Um, and again, here's where my, my own story comes in here. I first came across Dennis Turner's work uh, in the book that he wrote on Marx uh, when I was an undergraduate here at Villanova. Uh, someone I was really interested in political theology and, and uh, political philosophy, and so someone put me on to this book on Marx. I enjoyed it very much, and then went to graduate school and, and uh, went medieval. Um, and sure enough a few years later someone said well here you really must read this uh, Eros and Allegory and the Darkness of God, these two books by Dennis Turner I said oh dear this can't be the same man <laughs> <laughs> and he was so, uh, and so uh, I thought I was you know, bizarre for making the, the journey that I had made from political theology and political right. philosophy to, uh, to medieval mysticism and yet there we are and this is how it's, it's funny have you ever had the experience of uh, someone who seems to be two steps ahead of you on an intellectual itinerary and you, every time you think you've made an original discovery you say oh someone's just been there before <laughs> and so even though uh, I, I've just met Dennis this uh, weekend, I've been following his work for so long and I always feel like I ought to check in with him to see where I'm going to head next <laughs> <So, laughs> And enough, he's writing now a book on Julian of Norwich, um, and it's been abiding interest of mine. So the continuities continue, um, although I tell you I'm at least two steps behind. I promise you that. Well, uh, his most recent book is uh, Faith, Reason, and the Existence of God, um, and uh, his talk today for us is, uh, has a similar title. And he'll be speaking today about faith, reason, and the Eucharist. So without further ado, <coughs> let me turn the podium
1: over to Dan Please welcome Well, it is a, it's a wonderful pleasure to be here at this meeting. I've followed it from afar, um, uh, but never made it here to Villanova and to this conference. And it's been an absolutely wonderful uh, <clears throat> experience. In fact, um, it's been quite hard work. And <laughs> This is the end of the day. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I don't know anything, David, much about Islamic theology but I was told a story about the Mullah Nasruddin. I'm not sure that he actually existed but his texts apparently emerged in the 16th century And they, uh, 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 but as of a Sufi of the 13th century and he had a lot of students who admired him intensely and thought that he was exceptionally wise and one student said to him one day, Muller, how come you're so wise? And he said, well, it's like this, he said. When I get up in the morning, I talk all day long without break. No time for lunch, nothing else. I just keep on talking. But as I talk, I look into people's eyes. And when I see a glint, I write down what I've just said.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Now, (laughs) if,
1: if after today's hard work, I notice glazes in your <laughs> eyes. I'll just shout louder. <laughs> <clears throat> anyway, two years ago, I, I came to Yale from Cambridge where with uh, typical neglect of interest in matters taxonomical, no one asked me to attach a label to what I did. Uh, but I, when I came to Yale, I discovered that the chair I took up was supposed to be occupied by an historical theologian. And I wasn't quite sure what a historical theologian did. But since I suppose that the search committee did know what I'd been up to academically for some time, and since I imagined that if not I, then they at least knew what a a historical theologian was, that, um, well, presumably then something which comes naturally to me to do, uh, ought more or less to fill the bill. And do what comes naturally to me is something like this. I do, indeed, read a lot of medieval theology. Some of it in university dialectical styles, some of it in ruminative monastic styles of biblical commentary, some in the vernaculars of England, of France and of Italy, some by men, some by women, some in prose, some in poetry. But I read all this in an exploratory and to all appearances, as Kevin has sort of pointed out, in an apparently rather random way. Uh, I mean, I don't read systematically as one aspiring to be learned in medieval thought for its own sake, but rather as one thing leads to another by a sort of serendipity. Uh, As for example, when reading a lot of Latin commentaries on the Song of Songs, just because it seems like an interesting sort of thing to do, I came across Thomas Aquinas saying some apparently rather downbeat things about the theological value of Biblical poetry. And then some apparently even more negative things about the theological worth of secular poetry. And so I asked myself what Dante would have thought of that. And so I had a look, which took me into all sorts of highways and byways about poetry and vernacularity and theology. And at the end of one such trail, I found Julian of Norwich on whom I am now, as Kevin has said, com- I hope, completing a monograph, though I am rather stuck on chapter 6. The only thought I've had so far about where this will take me is outside my period and into Calvin, for reasons which will be obvious to anyone who's read Julian. Fact is then that I'm not a proper medievalist, though proper medievalist might take the comment as a little snide if I explain that I read all this medieval theology simply because as a theologian I find so much of it to be absorbably uh, absorbingly interesting in its own right as theology, as if it were somehow obligatory upon the proper medievalist to find it tedious. <laughs> uh, well, of course, I don't mean that. What I do mean I- is that I think I am, after all, an historical theologian and not an intellectual historian. And I like to do theology, not just learnedly report on it, but I like to do theology in historical depth as a sort of resourcement. Because I find much in much medieval theology answers to questions I should want to ask anyway. And I find in some of them a lot better, uh, I, I find some of them a lot better uh, answers than we commonly get today, And I also find their questions, and more importantly, I find questions that I would not otherwise have known were there to be asked. i tell you all of this by way of introducing a sort of apology for the paper that I'm going to read. When Kevin asked me what I proposed to talk about. Perhaps too hastily, I suggested a version of a paper I had been cooking up which offered a summary of some theological themes in that recent book, which I had done more or less on the theological epistemology as faith, reason, and the existence of God. It seemed to connect with the themes of this conference. But almost immediately, I wondered how wise it would be to offer to a gathering of hardcore patristic medieval and Renaissance scholars a work originating as contemporary theological reflection, albeit in the light of the thought of a medieval theologian, a paper whose agenda therefore owed more, somewhat more at any rate, to debates of our own times than to those of the Middle Ages. But it became too late to recant, so there we are. It's full steam ahead then into an issue which puzzled me when, believe it or not, I read a dogmatic decree of No less, the first Vatican Council of the Catholic Church, which took a very unconditional stand in support of reason's power to know God. And, rather alarmingly, you'll perhaps think, declares all those to be anathematized who deny, and I quote, that the one true God, our Creator and Lord, can be known with certainty from the things that have been made by the natural power of reason. End of quote. Actually, it was that degree that got that book going, because I wondered what, in this case, Thomas Aquinas would make of it. And it's where this paper starts too, and hence the need for an apology. I am, however, going to speak to you today more about reason in Thomas Aquinas, and less than I should, perhaps, about faith. So, might I begin by taking a step back from the immediate issues there, and offer a generalisation about reason, by way of appeal to a medieval philosophical truism. That truism is one which you find Thomas Aquinas sometimes appealing to, though in fact he and others got it from their Latin translations of Aristotle's Peri Hermanias and the Metaphysics. The truism is eadem es scientia oppositorum. One and the same is the knowledge of opposed pairs. You might paraphrase one implication of this truism by saying that you can get worthwhile disagreements going only where there is agreed common ground to contest. Where you don't agree or can't as to what you're disagreeing about, where there is no scientia, you have but heterogeneity, or as the medievals called it, a diversitas. You get cross-purposes, not genuine disagreement as we can genuinely disagree about whether this object or that is red or green, but are only at cross-purposes. If you say, say it's green, and I say, no it isn't, it's six foot long. The no it isn't doesn't get any grip on anything. (laughs) Or, to take a more medieval example, I suppose medieval theologians thought heretics, whether of the Christian variety or Muslim or Jewish, as belonging to a common family, of disagreement, since with them you knew what you were disagreeing about. The falling out was, as it were, within the family. Whereas they would be mostly have been simply puzzled by Buddhists, hardly knowing where to start with them. That said, let me put in very blunt terms the first of two propositions, subsidiary to the defense of that Vatican decree, that I have it in mind to explain today. And this first proposition is about reason, And what I shall call its minimal sense. My purpose, and I do confess the tactics are a bit manipulative... (coughs) ...is to simply ask you whether you agree or disagree with Thomas about reason... ...and thereby seduce you all, either way, into agreeing with him... ...about where lies the common territory of our disagreement. And then I shall suggest that we have agreed, thereby, on this minimal sense of reason one way or the other. But either you won't disagree with Thomas about reason, in which case we'll be there in one move, or else we will have found some territory common between us all, a shared territory of disagreement, and I shall say, in doing just that, we show that we agree with Thomas Aquinas about what reason is, and about its place within our common enterprise, because a escientia oppositorum. How about that, then? I mean, the reason is, for us all, a common currency of the exchange of disagreements. Do you agree? No? Then tell me, how do you propose to disagree with Thomas Aquinas? On what account of the rules of agreement and disagreement do you propose? Only answer that, and we'll have agreed in two moves. For you will have at least agreed on what it is to assert and deny. Componendo et dividendo, as Thomas puts it, and about what counts as a settleable disagreement. And one such move, uh, one such means, only one, of settling disagreements is proof. If we can get that far, then we might be able to take one further step, though it's a big one. If we can agree that it is possible to settle disagreements about the existence of God by those means of proof, one way or the other, then we will have agreed with Thomas about reason in this it's absolutely primitive and minimal sense. I mean, just in principle, if not on the substantive issues themselves. Oh, and I do know that reason in this minimal sense is a cold and heartless thing. It's called logic, after all, an icy pool of thought technology, having to do with all those other cold and heartless things like inference and proof. But let's for the moment take a step into this icy pool and offer a provocation to some theologians who might want to disagree with my more more substantive proposition about reason and faith in the following way. The decree of the First Vatican Council tells us that it is a matter of faith that the existence of God is demonstrable by reason alone. I think Thomas agrees with that, and that, moreover, he takes that other step. But I think he believes that knowing with certainty in this case means demonstrable by proof, that is, by valid inference from true premises. But even though theologians today are much better disposed towards Thomas than they used to be, there's hardly one among them, of whatever theological tradition, who thinks he is right on that score, preferring on the whole the proposition that, on the contrary, it is essential to the defence of faith that the existence of God is shown to be rationally indemonstrable, beyond proof one way or the other. There are, of course, all sorts of grounds, Kantian and non-Kantian, for the theologian's scepticism of Thomas's hopes, for what Kant called speculative reason. But one of the most commonly put, and as casually as commonly, is Neo-Pascalian. You still hear it said, that even if it were philosophically possible, it's simply no use a theologians trying to prove the existence of God on rational grounds, because any God you could prove the existence of by purely rational means, would be, as Pascal so famously put it, a God of the philosophers. And a God of the philosophers could not be the same God as the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God of the faith. Now, hearing this from a good Barthian theologian would not be very surprising. More surprising is to get a reading of Thomas himself, such as that of Fergus Kerr, according to which, even if a rational proof that God exists could be had, and he implies that Thomas isn't really serious in supposing that it can be, the God exists of the philosopher could not mean the same, I quote, as the God exists of Christian faith from which he seems to think it follows that rational proof of God, even if successful, wouldn't get you to the same God as the God of Christian faith. But this appears to be a non-sequitur. For I cannot see Thomas Aquinas being much disconcerted by what Kerr puts to him by way of the non-equivalence of the divine names. Since Thomas knows perfectly well that the descriptions under which he thinks God's existence is proved prime mover, first cause, necessary being, and so forth, do not mean the same as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. After all, he knows that prime mover, first cause, necessary being, don't mean the same even as each other. But I think he would have been upset to know of this being considered an objection. Just because two descriptions do not mean the same, it doesn't follow that they're not descriptions of the same identical thing. Consider, the square of one and the square root of one do not mean the same, though the value both formulae yield is in either case one. And I do not recall any mathematicians being caused thereby to think that there are two numbers of ones, one deriving from squaring and the other derived from (laughs) square rooting. Or as John Haldane has put it, just because blockage in the system and a small piece of masonry do not mean the same, doesn't follow that what's blocking the system isn't a small piece of masonry. (laughs) And I sincerely hope my plumber won't be troubled by Kerr's scruples. (laughs) Just so here, you would of course have to show that the necessary being, uh, known by reason, is the same God as the cause and object of Trinitarian faith. But then Thomas puts in, I calculate, 149 articles of close argument between the famous Five Ways and the opening of the discussion on the Trinity, purporting to show just that. When Thomas says at the end of each of those proofs, et hoc omnes dequant deum, this should be translated not as, and this is how all people talk about God, because manifestly they don't commonly talk about God as prime mover or necessary being, And you shouldn't imagine Thomas not knowing that. Nor even as, and this is what all people mean when they talk about God, because they don't do that either, and Thomas knows that too. The phrase is more properly translated as what the philosophers call an extensional equivalent, as this is the same God as the one all people speak of. For example, when they pray, or make the sign of the cross, or whatever, Although, though, of course, that is a proposition which itself needs some argument, which you could dispute, there is no good reason for the theologians to take offence in principle, at any rate, not, it seems to me, on Pascal's grounds. What is probably more disconcerting than Kerr's anxieties is the problematic claim that Thomas theologically and Vatican I dogmatically appear to be staking for faith's relation to the possibilities of reason. But that claim appears to be that it is a matter of faith that reason can know God. And such a claim would seem to be simultaneously both outrageously overbearing in its claims to dictate to the philosophers and at the same time risk, riskily self-undermining. as a provocation to the philosophers by appearing can't do and on non-philosophical grounds. But the theologians will have to cause to worry about the decree because it would appear to place faith in thrall to what must in principle be a contestable philosophical proposition, for a propositions being philosophical would seem to guarantee its contestability. But were the philosophers to succeed in showing that reason could not in principle show the existence of God, then any account of faith which entailed it, th- that it could do so, would fall with the success of the philosopher's counter-arguments. Since if what a proposition entails is refutable, then the proposition which entails it, is thereby refutable. But I don't think either fear is justified. The situation here, in point of the decree's coherence, and as I believe Thomas's position's coherence, is somewhat similar to another, just as hotly disputed proposition, which in manner analogous connects matters of faith with contingent secular fact. Suppose you maintain, as Thomas does, though I gather again most theologians today do not, that faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ entails his bodily resurrection, and that bodily resurrection entails that one and the same body which hung on the cross is now at the right hand of the Father, then you claim to know on grounds of faith that as a matter of contingent fact, there are not going to be any preserved bones of Jesus' dead body lying somewhere to be discovered by archaeologists in the deserts of Palestine. In short, you know that by early on the third day, the tomb was empty. But the tomb's being empty or not remains a straightforward matter of observational and so fallible fact, even if its being empty is entailed on grounds of faith in the resurrection. There's a general but simple point in logic at stake here. Of course, if a proposition is true, then necessarily factual claims to the contrary are false, So necessarily, if it is true that Jesus' body was raised from the dead, then the tomb was empty. But that necessarily of faith's entailment does not make the tombs being empty any less an empirical, factual truth. As Thomas says, so long as the proposition Socrates is sitting is true, then necessarily Socrates is sitting. But it does not follow from this, as Plato seemed to think, that Socrates' sitting is therefore necessary. It remains a perfectly contingent f- matter of fact. He just has to stand up and walk away, and the proposition becomes false. Hmm? And the position in the point of the logic of the resurrection is, in like case, it seems to me, of necessity. If you believe in Jesus' bodily resurrection, then you know that, as a matter of fact, the tomb is empty. It does not follow that the tombs being empty is a necessary truth. Hence, had it not been empty, had Jesus' body been there, or had it been spirited away by the disciples and hidden elsewhere, then belief in the resurrection of Jesus would become unsustainable. Logically, the counterfactual remains available, even if actually by the truth of faith. Now I can see why some theologians would worry about faiths being tied in with this historically contingent entailment if it were being maintained that the meaning of resurrection faith is reducible to the factual consequence it entails. If, as the former Bishop of Durham, David Jenkins, used to put it, then if it followed that belief in the resurrection would amount to nothing more than a story about, as he put it, a bag of bones. But I don't think I understand what's going on here when I, uh, when I hear Christian theologians worrying in this sort of way. After all, every time they recite the creed, and some of us probably in an hour or so's time will be doing it, they declare what in faith they believe must be true. And among the truths, truths the creed declares to be of faith are some obviously plain historical facts, namely that Jesus was crucified, died and was buried. If those contingent historical assertions were not true, Christian faith would be in vain. So says the creed. I therefore cannot see why theologians should want to box themselves into so conceptually tight a corner as they do if they insist that were your faith to entail factual consequences, its significance would be reduced to them. Nothing of the sort follows except, I suppose, for a certain kind of logical positivist you can with perfect consistency say first that resurrection faith depends upon a certain historical facts being the case, (coughs) namely that the tomb was empty, and second, that faith in the resurrection could not consist in that facts being the case. For the hypothetical proposition, if belief in the resurrection of Jesus is true, then the tomb was empty, is not of course convertible to the proposition, if the tomb was empty, then belief in the resurrection was true. Of course, then, resurrection faith consists in more than belief in a mere historical fact, even if its truth entails one. So, I can see that these matters merely of logic say nothing at all of interest about that resurrection faith itself, but I didn't intend to be interesting about the resurrection, (laughs) but only to illustrate a parallel point, and equally one in mere logic, about faith's authority and reason's autonomy. Just as to say that belief in the resurrection of Jesus entails a certain empirical fact being true without robbing that fact of its empirical contingent character, so to say that faith's authority dictates that a certain philosophical proposition is true is neither to rob faith of its certainty by virtue of thus linking it to contestable truth claim, nor is that linkage to reduce faith to that proposition. So the Vatican decree does nothing to rob reason of its autonomy. On the contrary, faith's certainty concedes that autonomy to reason. For if by faith we know that reason is capable of knowing God, then it would seem to follow that reason can by itself know that it is capable of knowing God. And that, of course, would remain to be shown philosophically. So all the work of reason remains to be done by reason itself. And of its own resources. None of it is done for it by faith. <clears throat> I seem to have cut more than I intended to from this paper. <laughs> There's a missing paragraph. What I want at this point is to leave aside uh, the, this account of faith, of reason as I put it in this minimal sense, and talk now about a more extended conception of reason, which seems to me to be operative within uh, Aquinas' position. But in doing so, I can do very little more than give you the headlines, the uh, heads of, uh, of an argument, the very bones of it. But before that, I want to dispose of what seems to me an instinctive, though often unarticulated prejudice about reason, which can get in the way of reading Thomas Aquinas on the subject properly. There are theologians who just don't seem to like reason very much. (laughs) It seems so unfriendly to feeling, for a start, and to the rich complexity of life more generally. And one has to concede that reason reduced to this minimal sense that I've been describing as formal ratiocination is a dull, flat, and thus far not very profitable thing. And you might correspondingly be uninspired, as many are, by how far Thomas's essential definition, as he calls it, of a human being as a rational animal... ...appears to limp so laggardly behind the living, complex, vibrant, carnal reality of any actual human being. And while it's true that Thomas is no enemy of reason in that narrow sense of reasoning, ratiocination... ...he is equally clear that you cannot get the role of reason in theology right... ...even in that limited employment of it, which is ratiocination. And to what it is for a human being to be a rational animal than any which might be deduced exclusively from a rationality so minimally conceived. Now, though Thomas doesn't quite put it this way himself, I want to suggest that you get the hang of the full-blooded thing that he means by rational animal if you can see how it is that of all the activities in which human beings engage, it is music-making which best exemplifies how animals are rational. That is to say, human. And I'll first say a few things about that. And then I'll say that you can see why this should be so in his theology of the Eucharist. There you can grasp a sort of ideal type of what rationality means to Thomas Aquinas and how it is that reason, understood in that sense in which music is typically rational, has a sort of Eucharistic or perhaps more broadly sacramental shape, epistemologically speaking. And then I'll say that a proof of the existence of God is just a case of reason in its minimal expression, as ratiocination, fulfilling itself in the same sort of epistemological shape that music and the Eucharist have. But all of them, poetry, music, proof, belong with what Thomas means by reason in its most general and fundamental sense, Paul. To understand this maximal sense, the first step is to begin where Thomas does, placing us humans where we belong in the big scheme of things. That is to say, with the proposition that we humans are generically animals. We are, as he says in the De Antieta sentia, all the way through, not partly, animals. Therefore, whatever we humans do, we do as animals do it. If we love, we love as an animal does. If my cat cannot reciprocate on equal terms the affection I bestow upon it, this is not because she is an animal and I'm not, it's because I am and she is not a rational animal. If we suffer, we suffer as an animal does. If I know and love God, then I know and love God as only an animal can. if my cat cannot know and love God, this again is not because my cat is an animal and I'm not. It's because the cat is a different sort of animal from me. So from one point of view, my animality contrasts with the brute animals in that mine is rational and the brute's is not. As it were, rationality is the form of my animality. But for for Thomas, my rationality places my nature in another point of contrast, namely with angels. There's only an animal that can be rational, and a rational all the way through, not partly rational, partly angelic. Know many more things than humans do, but are not rational at all. God knows everything knowable, but not as humans do, not rationally. When it comes to how to know things, animals and only animals do it by the rational means of deliberation. Angels do not know by deliberating, neither does God know things by deliberating. Only a certain kind of animal deliberates. Only a certain kind of animal can deliberate. And only animals have bodies to speak with. And that, as one of Thomas's earliest followers, Dante Alighieri says, is what it is to be human, a speaking animal. Or, as he puts it somewhat more negatively, all forms of failure to be human are in some way, or show up in, failures of language. Step two. Another way of placing human beings is to say that only rational animals have meaningful bodies, bodies which bear and transact meanings, bodies which speak. If you have a problem with my saying this, think about how a smile speaks. Since I happen to think of how Beatrice's smiles and frowns in Paradiso speak to him, or just consider how a man may smile and smile and be a villain, his smile saying one thing, his villainy another. Or think of the complexity of communication contained in that other famously ironic act which speaks: the kiss of Judas, that greeting of friends, whereby he betrays Jesus. Do you betray the Son of Man with a kiss, says Jesus, protesting at a cruel irony. If you have a problem with how a smile or a kiss or a laugh can speak, thinking them somehow or other to be more material than formal speech, do not be misled, for you will not find it any easier to explain how formal speech works, conveys meaning. For how less material than gestures are written squiggles bearing meaning? how are the vibrations of the larynx any less material than the rictus of the lips, either being expressive sometimes of the most profound thoughts? You may have a general problem about how meanings get into matter in any case, but if that is so, your problem about meaning and formal language is no more nor less difficult of solution than how it is that a smile or a kiss or a laugh can be the bearer of ironies. All are bits of matter which say things. Explain the one if you can, but only by such means as explain both. Such at any rate is the view of Thomas Aquinas. You'll find it all in his commentary on Aristotle's De Anima, particularly Book 3, and elsewhere. A rational animal is a meaning-bearing, a sign-conveying lump of organised, sensuous matter. And we call those human bits of matter bodies, because they are matter alive with that form of life, Thomas calls it soul, which consists in the transactions of meaning. They are alive precisely as communicating, and the quality of their lives is in the quality of their communications. A rational animal is speaking matter. It is a body in its character as language. So back to language, and to help out there, back to Judas's kiss. You can grasp the terrible irony of that kiss because you grasp how its twofold meanings contradict one another. What Judas says, what Judas's kiss says as conventional bodily sign, the greeting of friends, is subverted by what is said by his act of doing it, betraying his savior and lord. It's not of course a unique case. Think of the performatively contradictory behavior of the parent ...who smacks their child in order to teach it not to solve problems by means of violence. (laughs) I smack to correct a misbehaviour, but the same smack itself unsays the correction. So that is step two. Utterances perform something, we say, or as we might add, signs effect. As to say the words, I promise, (laughs) is to promise. But also, performances utter... That is to say, the very materiality of the signifier, as enacted, can bear its own meaning. That is part of what is meant by saying that humans are rational, in Thomas's sense. Namely, that human bodies signify, or rather some matter is a human body, precisely if it signifies. You might say that brute animal bodies signal things, but don't signify. Angels don't have bodies, and, so as Dante says... If they transact meanings, it's not by means of language that they do so, which is the same as to say they're not rational. To take step three, consider poetry. Herbert McCabe once said, I quote, that poetry is language trying to become bodily experience, end of quote. And that seems right, except for the trying to be. Poetic meanings work through a complex set of transactions between what is conveyed by the meaning of the words, considered as formal speech, and what is conveyed by the signifier in its material physical character as shape on the page or a sound uttered. Very simple case, non-poetic case. Think of the difference inflection makes when saying, Emma Kirkby is not just a pretty voice, and Emma Kirkby is not just a pretty voice. Here, it's the words music, inflection, which delivers the difference in meaning, not the words as verbal signs, they are in either case identical. Poetry is the meal made of such material tonal devices, in a sort of contrapuntal interweaving of verbal and tonal meanings. As Oliver Davis puts it, in poetry the signifier itself is foregrounded. So the work of meaning is carried not alone by the formal meanings of the words, but also by that meaning which is conveyed by the material, aural qualities of the speech acts themselves, the rhythmic speech patterns, assonance, inflection, and so forth, these two in their contrapuntal interplay. That is poetry being the body. It doesn't have to try to be one. In fact, it might have been better if Herbert had said that it is music that poetry is trying to be which is to the point. But then McCabe McCabe added, and music is bodily experience trying to be language, end of quote, which again seems right except for that trying to be. For if in poetry there is a contrapuntal weaving of the verbally signified with the signifier itself, in whose materiality of being uttered there is also utterance, in music The signifier in its materiality is so absolutely foregrounded that all is reduced to it, with nothing left to it in the character of verbal language at all. For music is all rhythm and pitch and melody and harmony and dissonance. To see the difference between the verbal and the musical, therefore, think of this. When I say the cat is on the mat... You can attend to the meaning exclusively so that the materiality of the sounds disappears absorbed entirely into that meaning. You hear the sounds as something said, as semantic episodes. Or you can, if you try hard enough, attend to the mere noise of the utterance, the meaning disappearing into it, so that you hear the words simply as sounds minus their meanings. But either way, there is a distinction between the meaning of the words as words and the performance of the words as sounds. There is a surplus physicality of sound which you can identify separately from that meaning. And even in poetry, the most nearly musical of all the verbal arts, the musicality of the sound can work its effect only in conjunction with formal verbal meaning. But in certain kinds of pure music... You cannot make any such distinction, nor ought you to try. A string quartet has no verbal meaning at all. What you hear is what you get, meaning as sound, sound as meaning. In such music, there is no surplus, either of physicality over and above the signifying sounds themselves, or of signification over and above those sounds and their structuring in rhythm and pitch and melody and harmony. So you could say that music is like the Cheshire cat, all smile and no cat. (laughs) Because the matter has disappeared into the meaning, and the meaning has disappeared into the matter. Music is matter entirely alive with meaning. The most bodily, therefore, and at the same time the most formal of human communications. That is why I suggested that if you were Thomas, you might say, though of course he didn't, that music is the most rational of human activities, for in music, physicality and meaning, body and language, have become perfectly identified. Music is sound and fury, signifying nothing that the sound and the fury themselves don't signify. Music is all body, but precisely as language, as communication. It is body entirely transparent to meaning, it is animality, ...in its most transparent form as rationality. And that was step four. And now that I've got Thomas to take us about as far as is possible... ...from what we might have thought he meant... ...when I first used the word rational in this lecture... ...I can begin to explain what might truly be at stake... ...when he talks about a rational knowledge of God. There's a fifth important step to be taken yet but on the way, could I point you in the right direction by hazarding a speculation? It is that the nearest you can get to a sort of spontaneous and demotic natural theology, to a sort of pre-theological anticipation of theology, is in poetry and music, but especially in music. And if this is so, perhaps it's because of those paradoxical conjunctions of music's being closest to us in its intense physicality, and yet wholly open as to its significance, so very indeterminate, so lacking in particular reference, so purely formal. And for that reason, it opens up spaces of experience beyond our particularity, beyond our confined individualities. (coughs) Ancients, Pythagoras, did not think as we do now of some music as sacred and some secular. They thought music was sacred as such And whatever the reasons of the ancients, I think we moderns too intuitively experience in music a natural capacity for the transcendent. We can see it as a sort of natural theurgy. And if that is so, it would appear to have to do with the fact that music's very impersonality and otherness is what allows for such free, spontaneous and utterly personal responses. To paraphrase Nietzsche, music is all feeling or sadness, or joy, but as as subjectively and objectively unhooked. Subjectively unhooked, because it's no one's sadness or joy, and objectively unhooked, because its sadness or joy is not about anything in particular. It is feeling as anyone's, feeling which is absolutely selfless, and absolutely objectless, so it can be absolutely yours, as well as absolutely mine, but always as transcending us both, <clears throat> moving experience into a space free of the constative is communication absolutely free of judgment, free of Thomas's componendo e dividendo, and so at once rational and wholly free of rationality in the minimal sense that I earlier described. And perhaps that is why music is the most commonly experienced form of what the medievals called an exgesos, or in Greek, ecstasis, or in English, taking leave of your senses. It's rationality escaping from itself, but here's the paradox, in music, by the most sensual, most bodily, and so rational of means. Which brings us to step five. And this is that music, as I put it, is prototypically Eucharistic. And uh, maybe by now you've caught hold of the connective tissue of thoughts. It's a bit rash. The formal <laughs> sim- similarity of thought structure. For on Thomas's account, in the Eucharist is brought to the absolute limit possible before our resurrection, that same conjunction of absolute bodiliness and absolute transparency of meaning. For the Eucharist is all communication, is a communication of the word, which is all body, and it is body, which has become all communication, all word, all sign, an identity of message and its medium. Or, and this is just another way Thomas has of putting it, in the Eucharist, there is absolutely nothing left of the bread and wine's materiality, but only their character as signs, All smile and no cat again, for the cat has become all smile. As one might want with Thomas inelegantly to say, the cat has been thus entirely transubstantiated into its expression. For these are signs which now make real a presence of Christ's body, but but in such a way as to push to the very limits any force we can lay hold on for the words real and present. And then we have to add, and beyond such limits. But this is a bodily presence which escapes from itself. And we should note in this connection that the doctrine of the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist is in Thomas emphatically also a doctrine of the real absence. We might say that it is in his teaching on the Eucharist that we find Thomas's last word on ontology about what is most real. That ontology tells us that his paradigm of the real is the presence of the Christ in the Eucharist, a bodily presence which is total communication, all word, but just for that, the more intensely bodily, not less. So on the one hand, no body could be more present nor more bodily than Christ's body as present in the Eucharist, but no body could be more purely language, more purely word. But if that is so, then on the other hand, it is a word which is not only intensely animal, but is also a word which is ultimately beyond all understanding. Its intrinsic transparency of meaning must remain opaquely mysterious to us, because our bodies are opaque receivers of the mystery, are not themselves, yet totally communicative, for our bodies, like formal speech, retain a surplus of unmeaningful materiality over and above their capacities for meaning. And that's because, unlike Jesus' body, ours are not yet raised. Jesus' body is wholly present to us because his is raised, but it is also experienced in our bodies as absence because in our present historical contingency, ours are not. Hence, What the Eucharist makes real is both the now of presence and the not yet of absence. And it is just that conjunction of presence and absence which is made real. For the Eucharistic presence is caught up into an eschatological and not a merely linear temporality. Thomas's ontology then, his account of the real, is essentially sacramental because essentially eschatological. Inscribing in the body in its present condition an openness to a future, which is not yet. <coughs> the Eucharist in, is then an uncompleted eschatology realised as bodily exchange. The bread and wine become that body, a body which is all communication, the flesh made most perfectly to be word, futurae gloriae nobis pignus datur, as Thomas says in one of his Eucharistic antiphons, a pledge given to us of future glory. It's in these respects, then, that music both shows us what is central to reason, and in doing so, shows how reason is prototypically Eucharistic. At any rate, we could mean that much by reason, if we did not simply abase ourselves between the altar of that recent intellectual history, which has reduced reason to ratiocination to its minimal sense as logic. If music is a kind of spontaneous natural theology, just because it is a kind of spontaneous, natural eschatology. Which is why I think it is that all great music, it does not matter whether in mood it is happy or sad, is in a certain way, which is characteristic of it as music, always sad. Music always strikes chords, because music is the lacrimarium, the world's tears, its recollection of what yet cannot be. At any rate, whether it is that weird and terrible trio of the Schubert string quintet, or that hushed moment of reconciliation in the finale of The Marriage of Figaro, whichever it is at one end or the other of the emotional spectrum, or wherever between, all music makes you cry. And I think it does so because music is, in a way, a shadow cast onto human sensibility of that eschatological temporality of the Eucharist. The sadness of music is a sort of sensual nostalgia for what one has caught some glimpse of but cannot yet possess. It is, as it were, a premonition of a premonition. It is a shadow of the Augustinian anamnesis, a depth dug into memory, Scoring it with a sort of hope made real, but also as loss and as absence. Made present, but as yet to be real. It's our homeland glimpse, but as yet from a distance. But if that's the sort of thing that is meant by reason in this is maximal, as also <coughs> in its most fundamental sense, it's our animality, as being itself the quasi-sacramental bearer, ...of that self-escaping significance. Then we can take our final step to the conclusion, namely... ...that that, too, is the shape which must be possessed... ...by that very particular exercise of reason... ...which I've been trying so hard till now... ...to get you not to reduce reason, to That minimal sense, which consists in ratiocination... ...in inference, in argument and in proof. Reason for Thomas is always bound to end up with God. So why not that minimal form of it, which is ratiocination, too? For reason in that sense of reasoning gives names to things. It names all that which music, through its very indeterminacy, its refusal of constative character, can gesture towards but does not and cannot name, because naming is precisely what music is the refusal to do. But if reason, in this form as reasoning, names, it has to, because that is just what it does, it does so also in the shadow of music's inarticulateness and indeterminacy, in the shadow of its apophaticism. For if, if, as Thomas says reason ever dares utter the name God, it may do so only as that which finally defeats its powers of naming. Naming God is reason's supreme achievement, but only insofar as in doing so, it knows that what it so names escapes from under the naming, dodges all the arrows of naming that reason can fire at it. And that, as Thomas says, is quad omnes deacunt deum. When we name God, we have stretched naming out to the end of its tether until that tether snaps. Indeed, it is the snapping of reason's tether that is its primitive theological moment. In God, reason reaches the point of collapse, because overweighted with significance. And now when Thomas says this omnes, called omnes de deum, I think we've can, with greater confidence, agree on that all Christians, Muslims, Jews. But just as well, those atheists, it would be worthwhile having around to do their denying, (laughs) engaging through their oppositio, in an adem scientia. I have no intention of taking you through, still less of defending in point of their soundness, those famous and much derided Five Ways of Thomas Aquinas. I simply ask you to note the argument strategy by which they work, for it has, as music has, the shape of the sacramental, the form of the body's transparency to the mystery we call God. It's the same ontology at work. It's only through our body's intimacy to the world's materiality, to the way things move, to the way one thing depends on another, to the way things come into existence and pass out of it, that we achieve that glimpse of the world's ultimate significance, which is the unknowable mystery of God. And herein is the paradox of our human rationality, which, say, of which, as I say, music is a sort of sign or anticipation. When in the Prima Pars, Question 2, Article 3 of the Summa Theologiae, Thomas tells us that we can, by these five ploys of inference, prove the existence of God, He notes immediately afterwards in question 3 that what proves God to exist also proves that as of God we have finally lost our grip on the meaning of exist. So that in proving God to exist we push reason to the point of its own exhaustion. And so it is that by means of rational inference we do in a merely speculative way what the Eucharist draws us into the very life of. Reason gets you to where unnameable mystery begins, but stands on this side of it, gesturing towards what it cannot know. And there it is self-emptied, kinetically, you might say. It is stunned into a sort of babble at the shock of its final defeat. This reduction to babble, by the way, being what is otherwise called theology. but by the Eucharist we're drawn into that same mystery as into our very and oh so very carnal life so that we live by the mystery we eat it though the mystery is no more comprehensible as Thomas says for being eaten than it is for being thought for he tells us that we do not resolve the mystery by faith as if for reason it was some insoluble conundrum to which faith, on the other hand, holds the solution. For we do not know what God is, even by the revelation of grace. By grace, he says, we are indeed truly made one with God so as to share the divine life, but as to one who is unknown to us. Quasi a e noto coniungamo. So, there you have it. That, I think, is how animals know God, whether by reason or by faith, at any rate, according to Thomas. Put it its simplest, his position is formally that of the Vatican decree, that there are grounds of faith for affirming reason's capacity, that it can, of its own resources, know God. Reading Thomas alerts us not to confuse his baby of reason with the bathwater of rationalism. If unalerted, you do confuse them, you'll have all sorts of unnecessary and theologically damaging zero-sum problems, trading off faith and reason against one another. At any rate, that is what Thomas seems to say. And so do I. Well then, I took the plunge into reason's icy waters, and you will have to admit bravely, or perhaps rashly enough, and I found them not to be so chilly after all. But now that I've done my bit, the question passes over to you. Bobbing about in those 13th century waters as I have been for the last 50 minutes or so, I will leave you to decide was I waving or was I drowning?
0: <laughs> Sculpture as intensely
2: material, mm-hmm. as a play of absence and presence, as bodily tactile, uh, mm. in ways that music might or might not be mm. is as and, and sort of good Eucharistic connections
1: there as well. Mm. don't think um, it changed, but I'll tell you what I'm reminded of. Um, uh, years ago, I was teaching in a summer school in the States, in Manhattanville College, with Terry Eagleton. And we went together to uh, the Museum of Modern Art where there's an exhibition of Giacometti sculptures. Mm. Right? Now, you, 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 are you familiar with them at all? I mean, they aim at the dematerialization of matter by material means. That, that there's a, an attempt at diminishing the matter maximally, which you're only to do by means of getting the matter to do something. He's trying to get the matter to be nothing but meaning.
2: More or like Richard Serra.
1: Sculptures. Don't know. I, I, the, um. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, I don't think it would. And in any, I, I, and the other thing I was just trying to, I, I didn't mention it because I wasn't sure what connection I could make. Um, but it just reminds me of Chapter Three of the Mystical Theology of the pseudo Denis, which we heard some talk about this afternoon at one of the sessions. The, 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 um, that 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 metaphor of a winnowing away of the materiality, so as to, as it were, release, form. Um, uh, that, 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 you know, the block, the solid block, which is just materiality with no significance, is, achieves a significance precisely by its being winnowed away. Now, that's not somehow or other becoming less bodily, more spiritual. It's the body becoming meaningful, And that's what you mean by rationality, do do, do you see what I mean? I think that's what Thomas means by rationality. Music is a
3: good
4: example,
1: it's not the only example. Yes, indeed, indeed, Uh absolutely so. Uh, I I, I actually put music up front there simply because having read Kant's third critique for the first time in my life and seen him do this appallingly uh, egregious ranking of the um, Uh, of the arts on a scale which leaves music at the bottom. Why? Because it's the one that's least like language. Now, that's to get everything wrong. (laughs) Absolutely everything. About language, about music, about scales, etc. It's one of those... uh, I mean, Elizabeth Anscombe once said, the great thing about Hume is that he's much more interesting when wrong than you and I are when we write. <laughs> now, now that is so wrong of Kant, that it's really, really helpful. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, no, no. No. Yes, David. And, and I
1: dare say about proof. Mm. Uh, ah. Really, uh, what I, uh,
4: this was a magnificent uh, crazy of, of your book,
1: and
4: it took it further because in defending your position in that book, everybody said, well, what does he mean by By proof? Yes, yes, yes. yes, And and what I've suddenly realized is, and I'm going to to take it a step further see if I'm right, um, suddenly realized is that what you're telling us, really, is that Thomas' immersion in the Eucharistic life, Hmm. which, of course, he also celebrated poetically, allowed him, opened him up to this role that reason has. Yeah. And it's quite compatible with Vatican I, mm-hmm. on your account, to say, to be utterly critical of any attempts to, to uh, prove God's existence. Sure. Indeed, by showing that most of them, in fact, do pop out the biggest thing around. And yeah. Not God. yeah,
1: that's right. Uh, yeah.
4: And mm-hmm. secondly, to focus on the fact that in doing the five proofs, as you put it so nicely, Aquinas is really offering a strategy, which comes down to saying that we can't even begin the theological enterprise unless we ask ourselves the question, why is there something right Nothing,
1: exactly, yes. Yes, yes, yes.
4: What I think is so crucial here is that it is indeed our participation in the Eucharistic life that might help us get straight about what proof it is. Yes,
1: yes, yes. I think that's the right way around. I mean, part of the problem with the scholastic ways of doing things is that it works in a linear fashion. One thing comes after another. Actually, that's called time. You know, <laughs> the one thing comes after another. But there, there, there's no attempt at that sort of poetic condensation. Uh, 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 and it has that sort of inferential character. Now, I mean, just simply, the way we anthologize things these days, I mean, is, and you just get the five ways of Thomas and are they valid, is, is to rip the thing to pieces. Um, I mean, just for a start, you've got to connect question two, article three, with questions 44, 45, 46 on creation, even to know what he's attempting to do. And that means you've got to read Question 2, Article 3, in relation, as you, you remind me, of, of, of that, why is there anything rather than nothing? That sense of the utter contingency of the whole of things. There's degrees of contingent necessity within the wholes of things, but as of everything, that has to be totally contingent. There is no narrative, no possible narrative, of there being something rather than nothing. Because uh, unless you misunderstand nothing, do you see what I mean? Unless you take nothing as a sort of stuff that was there before and out of which something comes. As Thomas says, the out of nothing, the negation governs the out of. There's no out of going here, so there's no storyline, there's no narrative. The whole thing is utterly puzzling. And once you're puzzled that sort of way, then you know what the arguments of the existence of God are about. And you know why it is that, they, that, that if this is an operation of reason, it's an operation of reason which is, as I put it, escaping itself. I mean, that's sort of Anglo-Saxon uh, for you know, big words like transcendence and Excess. things like that. You know? yeah. Yeah, which is helpful not to use sometimes, <laughs> isn't it? Um, Yeah? yeah
2: return to your example of music again. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think you're, I think this is, does, it gives us a sort of great way of thinking about the world kind of sacramentally. Mm-hmm. And, wh- and as you suggested, what's going on in music is matter has taken on form to such a great extent that, that there's a real sense in which, in our experience, the materiality has sort of passed away. Mm-hmm. So all we experience is sort of the, the pure form, the, yeah. the pure act. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, if we want to sort of s- set our immediate experience aside and think sacramentally. At the same time, we want to say actually body has sort of come to its fulfillment yes, here. Yes. Even though for our experience it sort of disappeared, but body's come to its fulfillment. Yeah. Um, that seems right to me. And I think, I mean, as someone who's an admirer of Maurice Merleau-Ponty, I think everything yeah. you say is yeah. <laughs> completely consistent yeah. with his thought. Yeah. Yeah. What I want, though, is to find this more strongly in Thomas. Thomas being, to some degree, a good Aristotelian to be Mm. careful about what degree in this crowd. Mm. Um, Thomas, whenever he wants to define body, he wants to talk about body as potency Mm. and form as actuality. Mm. So are there really any resources in Thomas for thinking about, I mean, I want to think about Thomas this way, but as body, Coming to some sort of actuality behind form, or when Thomas is constantly telling
1: us that mm. body is mere potency, is he mm. abstracting body in such a way that he's not really talking I, about? The body I, I think I way. think his it's problem cool. is in his reading De Anima. That, 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 that if you were to talk about the body as actuality, you would—this is anachronistic—you'd be Descartes. You can't talk about the body. As something other than that which possesses this kind of life as distinct from that kind of life. In other words, I mean, we're not body soul, we are matter soul, i.e., body, right? Mm-hmm. I think that's Thomas in the De Anima. Okay, that's Thomas in De Anima, and it's clearer in his commentary on the De Anima than it is, well, also in his um, Contraveroistas on the unity of the intellect against the, against the Averis, which is, I think, his most precise statement. Apart from anything else, it's a kind of praise of, of de anima, because it's a defense of his reading of Aristotle on the soul as against the Averist. Um Well, what he understood to be the, 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 the Averroes and David could probably tell us that it isn't Averis, but anyway. Um, uh, now, I, I, I think that um, what he's, he's got to do there... Is to um, get away from the idea that you can intelligibly talk about body at, otherwise than in terms of the soul, which is the form of it, do you see what I mean? So since you can get, have bodies of all sorts of kinds, which can be actualized in various ways, human bodies being just one sort of thing, you can't talk about body as actual.? Hmm? uh and i'm not quite sure why you would want to i mean what's the problem with thomas on body as potency
2: well i think what you're already pointing out to further yeah. some of like, my confusion is there seems to be certain different stratum here mm. um, where there's a sense in which to talk about matter and abstraction might be mere potency but once you're talking about body you're already talking about matter formed in a certain way. But but then again, that's still a sort of abstraction, because in the real world we have Mm -hmm. then body as a sort of Mm -hmm. potency with respect Mm -hmm. to a certain type of life, Mm -hmm. be it human life, squirrel life,
1: whatever. You've only got a body if it's alive. Do you see what I mean? As he says, following Aristotle, a dead body is only equivocally a body. Mm -hmm. The point about being dead is that you're no longer a body, you're just a bundle of chemicals. So there's no actuality to the lump of matter otherwise than it's being alive in a certain kind of way. That's the actuality which makes a matter to be a body. So there can't be any reality to a body as distinct from its life. Do you see what I mean? It wouldn't be a body if it didn't have life. So I think that's what he means. And it's a profoundly anti-dualist position. And my guess is that any kind of talk, he wouldn't like any kind of talk about a body being in act, otherwise, than through its life um, uh, as being very profoundly dualist, in a way which, among other things, would drive a coach and horses through everything he wants to say about the Eucharist, because the logic of that talk about the body would remove any possibility of talking about the Eucharist in no a way that you want to talk about the Eucharist. There's very close intimacy between them, and, uh, and I think this is one of the problems that I have with a lot of contemporary interpretations of Thomas, which are extremely dubious of my proposition that Thomas thinks there are rational arguments for the existence of God. And one reason for supposing that is that well, you know, just to take the Milbankian interpretation of Thomas, uh, the, 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 this suggests that. It's not really rational proof which is of an independent rational character that's going on here. Necessarily inscribed into the proofs are theological assumptions. Indeed, you know, some kind of faith assumption. Now, let's distinguish between faith as part of the premises of of an argument and the proposition I'm offering. Namely, that faith entails that there are arguments which don't need faith premises, right? And that's my position on Thomas, and it, it differs from that that that, that Millbankian radical orthodox, but also many others, you know, exactly, uh, who take the view that you know that this is old style scholasticism. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I couldn't care less if it's old style scholasticism. It's Thomas, yeah. Yeah. and it's not Augustine, you see, and it's this. Re- Sorry, I'm in a place where I oughtn't to be saying the <laughs> um, I mean, no, no, no. Augustine is important enough without having to be read into Thomas, right? Isn't that a nice way of putting it? <laughs> <laughs> Very diplomatic. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm fascinated by the. the um, I, I love the way
2: you're, you're, you're reading meaning, form. Mm. Body, right? But um, as rationality, mm. right? rationality is the, the, the form and meaning in body, um, where does truth fit into this exactly? Mm. Because, you know, inference needs truth, does, yeah. but does truth play a role in music, in, in the real presence of music? Where, where, where does truth fit into the picture here?
1: Well, in music, not, because I think the point about music is precisely that componendo e dividendo don't come into it, and I think that's what Nietzsche is picking up too that it's subjectless and objectless, and to get componendo, dividendo, judgment into it, you've got to have a subject affirming and an object of which what is affirmed is affirmed. Uh, And so you haven't got that duality, it's not, as they say nowadays, constative, Mm? Mm. Uh, 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 and that's its point. Mm? Do you see what I mean? Um, so I think uh, I think I'd rather say that than go down the Kantian line and, and, and sort of say, well, music's just terribly bad at saying anything, and therefore is very low in the ranking of arts. Do you see what I mean? The point about music is, and Nietzsche did pick this up, is that music isn't constitutive, and it is more fundamental than the constitutive in a way.
4: So it's meaning without truth.
1: Yep. Exactly. Uh, in that sense in which for Thomas truth is always connected with componendo at dividendo. Yes. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. yeah. In a certain kind of way. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
3: I want to pick up on that because mm. I think in a certain sense that's not adequate, and I'm going to use that word adequate intentionally, you'll see yes. why in a minute. Adequate to Thomas's account of truth, and I think it might mm-hmm. betray something deeper that I'm a, I'm a little yes. bit concerned about. Um, Thomas does not say that truth is reducible to composing and dividing. Mm. Right? The initial description of truth is the adequation of thing and intellect, yes, 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 and yes. composing and dividing yeah. is a kind of secondary yeah. species of truth.
1: Well, that's the operation which gets us there, though.
3: No, I think I think God's practical yeah. intellection creation is, is what gets us through. Maybe even God's sort of knowing oh. God's self. So, I mean, we're several mm-hmm. steps down, sort of ontological ladder, before mm-hmm. we get to, to human judgment. But the, but the reason why I think that that might be telling is mm-hmm. uh, well, let me, let me phrase it as a question. Yeah. I want you to help me sort of think through yeah. your, your yeah. argument. Yeah. It, it seemed to me, and i, I maybe way off base, but it seemed to me that that part of the structure of your argument was was to make something like the following moves mm-hmm. to, in a sense, to to want to equate rationality in this sort of maximal sense mm. with something like, like communication or, or speaking. Mm-hmm. And then to sort of link communication and speaking with, with music and with, with mm-hmm. Eucharist. And so they become sort of mm. uh, this this may put the cart before the horse, but sort of mm-hmm. expressions of rationality or bodiness yeah. of rationality mm-hmm. is, that, is that kind of the, the, yes, the, the yes, so very broad story? Yes, so go along with that. Okay, so so that mm-hmm. so the textual foundation for suggesting that rationality is is sort of speaking and communication Mm -hmm. in Aquinas was your very brief reference to book three of De Anima, Mm -hmm. where I I jotted down Mm -hmm. what I think I heard you say, which is that we are talking about that human beings, that that they're alive precisely as speaking. You Mm -hmm. said that was Thomas's. Mm
1: -hmm. What's
3: the text there? Because that that doesn't...
1: Well, uh, just one example uh, I think of, I think I can remember what it is, Prima Secundae, Question 94, Article 2. (laughs) 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 <laughs> 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 Nobody's got a copy of it here, I suppose. Well, now, what do you say? he's actually talking about the natural law. Uh, right, right, well, yeah. okay,
3: but well, yeah. let me, let me mm. hold mm. you steady for a second. First of all, the, the, the claim was about, was about a text from the, the commentary on De so I'm not going to let you off the hook there. But mm. but <laughs> the natural law, I don't... Well, I mean, where's, where's... How does natural law, particularly in, in the text that you're talking about, present human beings as rational through speech or communication.
1: Uh, precisely in that text, in which he do, he's talking about the, the three sorts of tendencies which seem to be built into what it is to be human, which are foundational for well, what it is that human beings most fundamentally desire just as human, having the sorts of bodies that they've got, it means that they need food and drink it means that they engage in sex and it means that they engage in rational discourse, he says. And this is all to do with the fact that human beings have a peculiar character, mainly that they are bodily in the way in which they are. And I think you can find it there. You can find it in his um, uh, uh, the, the first early bits, of his, the bits that are by him, of De Regimine Brinkiel. In yeah, various places, apart from the de anima, but my, for me, the main sources would be the de anima, commentary, and on the unity of intellect.
3: Yeah, Well, mm-hmm. uh, just to, to play off the, the, the text on natural law for just mm-hmm. a moment, I mean, to, to say that human beings have a natural inclination toward rational discourse, Particularly when you've said it in the same breath that they have a natural inclination towards things like eating and procreating, mm-hmm. it seems to me is is no more to justify the claim that rationality consists in communication than it is to justify the claim that rationality consists in digestion, right? I mean. No, I, indeed it.
1: I, I, that's perfectly. That follows. Indeed, it's an implication. I'm perfectly happy to accept.
3: Yeah, I, th- I, I yeah. think. I think there's an there's an illusion there of of humanity and rationality. And you may you may think that's that's felicitous, but I just no rational
1: know. animality is where the elision correctly is for Thomas, and that's precisely what I was trying to present an account of rational animality. That we, are, I mean, as I said, you've got to start with Thomas, with the fact that we are generically animals. We are not angels. There's nothing in us that is angelic, and he's very reluctant to go down that line, so common in his period of thinking, well, you know, the apex intellectus is the overlapping with the lowest rank of the hierarchy of angels, and so on. He does sometimes say that. He's still got that sense, but he's disinclined to say that, and he says firmly in the De Entita Essentia, we are totalita hmm? animals, and we are totalita rational, Right? not in part one and part the other. I can give you the actual quotation here, you know. uh, That's right, I mean, he's distinctly, he's he's there, of course, he's talking about the logic of the terms, predicate uh, expressions, is an animal, is rational. What he won't allow you to, 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 to generate from that logic is an ontology which says, well, a bit of us then is the animal bit and another bit is the rational bit. Our being animal is our rationality, and our rationality is our being animal. They're not identical because semantically they're different terms and they have different definitions. But in a human being, the whole of our animality is a rational animality. So we don't even desire food the way my cat does. So, so we desire it as rational animals desire it. So
3: if I, if I, if hmm? I follow your point then, hmm. And I think you intimated that mm. you would be content with this a second ago. Mm. In a certain sense, is, is equatable with rash. could mm. be, pardon the, the image, but just as much experimentalist... Exactly,
1: as well. exactly. I mean, you, you know, we don't even shit in the same way as a dog does. And, uh, well, I mean, you know, yeah. Uh, I didn't mean to go down that line because I. I invited you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but. but, but, but no, but the point, the, the, the point is that. If, in humans, eating were not a form of communication, you could make no sense of the Eucharist. Right? None whatsoever. Herbert McCabe, I remember, gave a lecture on the Eucharist once, years and years ago, just after the Second Vatican Council, when all his audience was incredibly, tenderly liberal and all the rest. And I remember a student asking him, Herbert, he said, why do we have to persist in celebrating the Eucharist with entirely irrelevant things, like bread and wine. Why not do it with hot dogs and coke, up-to-date stuff? You know? And Herbert, without a pause, said, "I always thought, you know, Herbert used to speak, um, always thought the Eucharist had something to do with the significance of food, he said. The thing about hot dogs and coke is that they are without significance and in any case aren't food. LAUGHTER <laughs> Do you see what I mean? No, food and eating carry mean And only rational animals eat significantly as communicating. And if that weren't the case, you could make no sense of Eucharist at all. Yeah?
4: One last observation might set us up for tomorrow morning too. Yeah? yeah. Uh, is it not true that what you say is only compatible with saying that it would be quite astounding if any one of us, or anyone, Mm. were able to come up with a proof that, in your sense, worked. Yes, yes, yes,
1: absolutely. And uh, I mean, the whole point is that nothing hangs on whether we've actually got a proof, right? Nothing hangs on that. What you want, what you don't want, is an account of faith which entails that there couldn't be one. Exactly. Right? That is deeply corrosive of our understanding of faith, exactly. for Thomas. Mm-hmm. So the issue and of is. Our
4: understanding
1: of reason. And of course, yes. But the reason why I wanted to get at it from the point of view of reason is that that's where the problem lies and generates our problems about the understanding of faith. So I, 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 I don't make too much of an apology for not having talked about faith because I think our problems about faith derive from. Our misconceptions about peace.
0: Well, on that note, let's uh, thank again. So, um, as I mentioned, we will, in short order, uh, have uh, the visual mass in room 119, and people who perceive that.